Welcome to episode 93 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia, and I'm also editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, family physician and associate professor at Rush University. I'm John Hickner, family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. We are recording on the winter solstice, which means that all of the days are getting longer, which was actually the basis for all of the ancient traditions of celebrating at this time of year. So we wish all of you peace and health in the new year. Thanks, Henry. On this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters, poems, If you want all of the poems every day, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get one daily in your email feed, plus a primary care-focused reference with over 800 chapters and thousands of interactive decision support tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product to get CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. Just go to IFPU.com. Click on the online IFP education webpage and find our podcast this week, Holiday Death Rates, Earwax, Antibiotics for Non-Pneumonia, Respiratory Infections in Kids, and Vaccine Boosters, and the Omicron variant. Kate, why don't you get us started, please? Yeah, since we had so many cheerful topics lined up for this week's uh, holiday podcast, I wanted to kind of dig into the evidence behind this rumor that is out there about whether mortality rates really are higher during the holidays. So this is an anecdote that, uh, like me, you've probably heard for many years, along with the myth that mortality rates also spike in July when new house staff starts. So on the holiday death rate topic, I found some interesting stuff. This required more studies than I thought it was going to to get a a clear answer. So first, uh, from 2010, an article from Social Science in Medicine that looked at 57 million death certificates in the U.S. and found that both Christmas Day and New Year's Day had a higher than expected number of deaths. And they found that the two weeks beginning with Christmas Day saw a higher than expected number of deaths for almost all causes of death that they looked at, as well as almost all demographic groups except for children. So next, a 2020 study from Plus One tried to get at the causes of the increase, not only of mortality, but also of hospitalization. This was a prospective case control study, and it looked at admissions between December 15th and January 15th. Those were the cases, and then compared that with admissions between January 15th and February 15th of the same year. They found that patients who were admitted in the December period had higher medical complexity scores, lower socioeconomic scores, higher frailty, but similar disease burdens than patients admitted in the in the January uh, time period. They also had an average length of stay that was four and a half days longer. And these are long lengths of stays we're talking about, 15 and a half days versus 11 days, as well as higher both in-hospital and all-cause mortality compared, again, with patients admitted in the January time period. But then I found this study from Australia that threw all of this like straight up into the air. So this was a retrospective analysis of five years of data of cardiovascular hospitalization and events, and they found a higher rate of hospitalization and death in the winter, which in Australia is in July. The December holiday season, which is in the peak of the summer, actually had the lowest rates of hospitalization and death. So there's a lot that probably goes into these findings. Patients who are able to be safely treated outpatient may well not be admitted, even if they might have been admitted in a similar condition in another month. So only those patients who truly have no safe outpatient options, the frail, the complex, the socially economically disadvantaged, 
will be hospitalized in the holiday period, and they're probably at higher risk of mortality to begin with. So bottom line, I think this is probably real, at least in the US, even if we don't completely understand it. If you're in Australia, I guess watch out for July. <laughs> Henry, what do you what do you think about this one? Wow. Um, I don't know where to go. The, I mean, I'll, obviously, we know that the holidays are very stressful, and maybe some people will do many things to try to avoid the holiday stresses, including the extreme measure of dying, at, at least in these some of these studies. Yeah, I've kind of looked at this um, off and on over the years, and <clears throat> there have been a couple of studies that have tried to look at this notion of does death take a holiday, which, by the way, is a great movie with uh, James Mason and others. Um, and, you know, the, the data are kind of all over the map, but I was intrigued by a couple of, of studies, one in 2004. Uh, they looked at um, 10 years of cancer deaths in the state of Ohio. And they found that generally there wasn't really much to say, but among black persons, the week before Thanksgiving, cancer deaths went up. And in women, um, the cancer death rates went up the week before their birthday. And then in Germany, the, over a 15-year period, they looked at all cancer deaths in, in Germany and also found that there was a higher death rate the week before Christmas. So this is an, an interesting phenomenon, whether it feeds into some of our cognitive biases or if these are um, disease-specific kinds of issues that might be explained through um, access or other kinds of things. I just don't know, but it's, it's really intriguing. Or if, or if you're making multiple, multiple comparisons and slicing and dicing a bunch of data, you'll find some significant blue, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed people die the week after their birthday or something like that. Maybe that's it. John, any, any parting comments? My conclusion is a little more straightforward than that. And my conclusion is that winter is bad for you. And <laughs> hence the reason that Val and I have bought a winter home in Florida. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> Uh, so yes, and we hope you'll get down there soon and, and uh, warm up from your sojourn up in uh, northern Michigan. John, you've got the quiz. Yes, since it's Christmas time, I thought we ought to have a Christmas-related quiz question. So here it is. How many towns in the United States are named Christmas? Is it one, two, three, four, or five? And stay tuned for the answer. You could look it up as we present. All right, Henry, tell us about uh, getting rid of earwax. So um, there's a popular solstice song that asks the question, do you hear what I hear? And the answer is, I don't hear nothing because I got my ears full of wax. Um, so this was a study by Street Haran um, and colleagues published in Clinical Otolaryngology um, this past spring. Mark? How many journals do we cover in poems? Over 110. And I didn't even know that that was one of them, but apparently it is. Yeah. So we cover journals like this so that our readers and listeners don't have to. So this was a network meta-analysis of randomized trials. They incorporated, and they did a pretty good job of their, in terms of methods. They identified 25 studies to include in this network meta-analysis. Unfortunately, most of the studies were not of high quality. And... Um, and so there are some limitations there. Um, when they looked at 
individual single dose therapies. There was only one single uh, product, which was combined with syringing of the ears in the office. So a product that contained chlorobutanol, and that resulted in about a two and a half fold increase amount of clearing compared with syringing with um, normal saline. Now, that was limited because it only looked at adults in those studies. Um, in studies that looked at both children and adults, it turns out that sodium bicarbonate, ordinary baking soda, and paradichlorobenzene also had higher proportions of wax clearance, but those required multiple dosing. So bottom line is that if you've got a person in the office and they really want to get the um, stuff out of their ears in a single um, setting, um, that chlorobutanol is probably the way to go. And that's available commercially under the trade name of Serumol, which is available for $10 at Amazon. I believe it's a British product, so you might not be able to find it on the shelves here. Now for at-home use, a simple homemade baking soda and water, half a teaspoon of baking soda, 100 mLs of, um, of water, but it's going to require multiple dosing before they come in to have their ears syringed. Mark, what do you think? Well, <clears throat> I woke up this morning, coincidentally, with a right ear full of earwax. And, oh, lovely, uh, lovely, lovely. Hearing poorly, so... I will be uh, getting that baking soda together after we after we finish our podcast. So yeah, I, you know this is just one of those great common things, and it's been kind of mediocrely studied over the years. And uh, sure, it would be nice to have a really really well done study. And I do think that it, it would be great if folks could just handle this at home. Um, I have the luxury of having a butterfly that I snipped off and a syringe that I can use for flushing out the ears myself. But most patients don't have that. So yeah, good good information. I'll I'll be ordering some Serumol from Amazon. Okay. So I um, read this and went to the trouble of reading the original article. And I think this is a case of like a meta-analysis that probably shouldn't have been done because the studies <laughs> that were included were so poor quality that I'm not sure that the conclusions that they were able to draw were very good. So, you know, looking at some of the the confidence intervals on their conclusions, they ranged from like very, very small numbers to like, you know, uh, the upper limits were like in the three and and four hundreds. Um, and so, you know, their their actual confidence was, was really low, which means that my actual confidence is, is pretty low in their in their results. Uh, so I, I didn't I, this is one where perhaps the stakes are a little bit low. Um, but the, the results weren't, weren't all that moving to me. Um, <laughs> that, well, that let's just go, let's go with the, let's go with anecdotes then, um, <laughs> might as well. In my office, we've always used hydrogen peroxide. Now that wasn't my idea. That was the nurse's idea. So, cause the nurses and nursing assistants are the ones that flush the ears. So they drop a few drops of hydrogen peroxide, let it bubble for a while and and then I'd go in after they flushed, and more times than not, the ears were clear. So I'd like to see hydrogen peroxide at least given a chance and, and tried. It'd be nice to see a study to see if it works. Yeah, I think it was It yeah. was actually in the study they did look it at it, and it was actually probably effective with multiple applications. So I think the bottom line is any of these things applied multiple times to soften the earwax, you know, over a period of a few days. You know, I, my usual regimen is hydrogen peroxide a few times a day for a few days. And then I try to flush it out, um, you know, with the, with the syringe and, and, you know, more often than not, something, something pops out and I can hear again. So the old timey people used to like to use the ear candles, but the, the 
your hair would sometimes ignite. So that wasn't necessarily <laughs> yeah, the, the best <laughs> choice. <laughs> the other thing that you can use is a, uh, is a bulb syringe. Uh, there's a, a study done a few years ago looking at the use of a bulb syringe. So nothing fancy, right? It's not, yeah. a, uh, not, not elegant, but effective. All right. All of these are better than ice picks. <laughs> or two. Oh, I also got a thing. I actually ordered this because I was so frustrated getting the earwax out. You can buy this little device that has a camera and a little spoon at the end of it. And it hooks up to your iPhone and you can look at your iPhone as you're sticking it in your ear and navigate your way to where you see the wax and then spoon it out. I'm not kidding. I don't, that not sounds dangerous. I, I think we've heard about all we need to hear about. I'm a physician and surgeon, so it's okay. All right. Okay. If anybody anyway. makes it to, to minute 11 of this podcast, it'll be a miracle. By the way, we didn't have any eggnog before we started. This. So, <laughs> no, nice, believe it or not, this is a sober discussion. Speak for yourself. Okay, 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 okay. Let's move on. Um, amoxicillin. Uh, for low respiratory infection in children. This was a huge, not a huge, but a big English study. Uh, Paul Little, Nick Francis, Beth Stewart are the, the lead authors. They're a group that's been doing this kind of excellent work. And Paul won the award from NAPCRAG for the, the Maurice Wood Award last year for top researcher. Um, so they do good work. So the question, is amoxicillin beneficial for kids six months to 12 years with a low respiratory infection that's not thought to be pneumonia. So they found 432 kids and presenting to their GP in the UK with low respiratory symptoms for less than three weeks, but they had no clinical signs suspicious for pneumonia. Now, all did have an acute cough, and they had symptoms that localized the infection to the lower tract, like shortness of breath or sputum production or pain in the chest. Kids were randomized to get amoxicillin, 50 milligrams per kilogram per day, in three divided doses. So for a 33 pound child, that's 250 TID. So a pretty hefty dose. Nasal swabs were taken to look for common pathogens. Parents kept symptom diaries for up to a month or until the kid got better. The median age was about three years, about half were boys, half were girls, 13% had a comorbidity and only 28% had gotten a flu vaccine in the past year, which is kind of low. They had complete follow-up data for about three quarters of the patients and they imputed missing data where possible. The primary outcome was a duration of moderately bad or worse respiratory symptoms and was the same between groups, uh, five versus six days. Hazard ratio was non-significant. There was no difference in secondary outcomes like hospitalization, having to come back with new or worse symptoms, symptom severity, how long it took till they felt better, uh, no differences between groups and adverse events. <clears throat> amoxicillin is recommended in this dose for pathogens with intermediate levels of resistance in the UK. Only two patients in the placebo group and five in the antibiotic group had atypical pathogens found, uh, things like chlamydia, mycoplasma, uh, pertussis, uh, strep pyogenes, fusobacterium that would not be expected to respond to amoxicillin. So high dose of amoxicillin, 50 milligrams per kilogram per day in three divided doses, didn't significantly improve basically any outcomes for kids with low respiratory infection who didn't have pneumonia. I mean, these are viral infections. It shouldn't be a huge surprise for anybody. John? No. In fact, I'm a little surprised that the study was done because all previous studies have shown that antibiotics don't help with acute respiratory infections that are not pneumonia. So there must have been a reason that Paul Little decided to do this study, maybe because of the persistent use of antibiotics 
in kids. And of course, we still see it, especially, unfortunately, in urgent care settings where uh, it seems like antibiotics are still handed out way more frequently than they ought to be. Yeah, I think that's a real concern as, as care for acute infections has shifted to the urgent care setting where there's less of a relationship and more of a maybe a profit incentive to keep the patient happy. Kate, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm just sort of projecting things that, that they might have been looking at. So it might have been the dose of amoxicillin, uh, making stuff up here. So it says specifically it was a, a higher dose, 50 mg per keg um, per day. The other thing that I would have been curious to, to know was whether they looked at um, – when the antibiotic was started, so they were looking at kids who had only been who, who had been sick for less than than three weeks, which certainly makes sense. Um, and I think you know most of us aren't aren't giving a mox for kids who have been sick for just a couple of days. But at that sort of two week mark, when you know people are coming back, then we're starting to think: is there something here that we haven't seen? Um, so I wonder if if there was a difference in, and I'm sure that the study wasn't powered for that, but if there was a difference in outcomes there. Um, the other thing that that it doesn't look like they particularly studied was, um, you know, whether patients, whether the the parents could figure out what their kids were getting, um, and if there was any difference in satisfaction based on on that for for parents who who perceived that the kid was getting an antibiotic or not. Um, not that that makes it the right thing to do, but I think it does play into our decision making to some extent. Yeah, I think that it was placebo controlled, so I don't think the parents knew what the kid was getting. <laughs> Um, but, and I think the median duration of symptoms, I'm trying to remember, I, I wrote this one up, <clears throat> was around five days. So I think they've been sick for about five days median, uh, when they were randomized, but obviously it probably had a fairly long tail on that distribution, uh, in terms of the duration. So thanks for your comments. Appreciate it. Um, John, you're going to tell us about, uh, Omicron. Yes, this study was new news when I wrote it up last week, but now the results appear on TV news many times a day. The bottom line, of course, is that you need a booster to prevent Omicron. So let me give you some of the data. Here's, here's the study that provides the data. Uh, the UK Health Security Council released the results of this case control study on December 9th. They released it to a preprint server, so it hadn't been peer-reviewed, but it's certainly been widely cited. The, the odds of initial vaccination and vaccination plus booster in PCR-positive cases, that's people who had COVID, either Delta or Omicron, so they studied Delta and Omicron. This was in the UK, and that was compared to the odds of vaccination and vaccination plus booster in those who tested negative during the study period, which was from October 16th to December 6th of this year, 2021. Now, they only included symptomatic individuals in the study, which really is an important point, since we know at least 40% of cases of COVID are asymptomatic. They could only study the AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines because those are the only two that had been used frequently enough in the UK, and, and mostly this is about the Pfizer vaccine, quite, quite honestly. They studied effectiveness at various intervals after the initial two-dose immunization and then after the booster doses. Uh, they had 581 symptomatic Omicron cases that were included in the study, many more Delta, about 55,000 Delta cases, and 130,000 controls who had tested negative. So that those are the patients that can, uh, were in the study. Now, the AstraZeneca vaccine was really not effective against Omicron at all until they were given a Pfizer booster, and then it was about 70% effective. Now, 
Of course, these boosters weren't given months ago, so these boosters were given fairly recently. The Pfizer vaccine, on the other hand, even without a booster, was somewhat effective. It was about 40% effective in preventing Omicron infection. And with the booster, it went up to about 75%. The effectiveness, however, against Delta was, was much better across the time span, reaching over 90% with both of these vaccines after they had had the Pfizer booster. So those are, those are the main findings. It was a long report with a lot of nuance in it. You'll notice I said nothing about severe consequences such as hospitalization and death because we still are less certain about that. It hasn't been around long enough except in South Africa where it appears it's less virulent, but it's still a bit early for us to make any predictions. And because it's so contagious, of course, uh, there will be plenty of people that die from Omicron. So hence the reason that you hear on the TV several times a day, get your booster, get your booster, get your booster, because if you haven't been boosted, your protection is pretty minimal against Omicron. Kate? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, I think there there is still a lot that we, we've, we've been down this road before. There's a lot that we don't know, and there's a lot that we're going to be learning quickly um, about Omicron. And I think, again, we've, we've been down this road before about what we've learned and how quickly. And so one of the important things is going to be uh, paying attention and being open to changing as we learn more. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, we've learned a lot about uh, being able to, to mix and match vaccines and boosters. So if what you happen to have open and thawed in the office that day is Pfizer and you're, you've got a patient who, you know, got a Cinevax in a different country or got, you know, a, a Moderna at the pharmacy, uh, go ahead and boost them with what you've got available that day, because having the booster seems to be more important than um, than, than not having the booster uh, at this at this stage. So uh, we'll see what happens next and, and we'll learn a lot very quickly. Henry? Yeah, there was a Public Health England report yesterday, and they found no evidence that it was less uh, virulent or caused less severe disease based on their analysis that adjusted for age and, and so forth. And so that's, you know, concerning, certainly. Um, yeah, Henry? Final thoughts yeah, on so this? as John pointed out, there's really no news here. Um, get your shot. Uh, we've said this since the very beginning in our courses and the like. Plan on, we've anticipated needing boosters. Plan on getting boosters. Um, stay tuned. And, and I think the biggest issue for me is the issue of vaccine hesitance vis or resistance. I, I'm going to stop using the euphemism of hesitance, it's resistance. There, There's a group of individuals that we need effective strategies on how to overcome those. Some of it is you don't give people a choice, which is um, the commonplace in the military, for example. Um, it's not popular and people are um, riling against it. Nonetheless, we need other effective strategies. And then bottom line is, I am so tired of this plague. So we just had to take a little break from recording because my dogs go crazy. We have a new dog uh, that we've adopted. He's a three-year-old golden getting heartworm treatment. And uh, I don't know what his previous life was like, but he barks at everything. And so he barks at the FedEx guy. And so we've actually taped cardboard over our front window. So we now look like a meth lab in downtown <laughs> because it keeps mostly keeps him from barking, but they can still kind of see shadows. And so when they see that FedEx truck, all bets are off. Anyway, it's been great. Um, I, I'm ready to hear how many towns in the U.S. are named Christmas, John. There are two. 
There is Christmas, Michigan, population 1,071, and Christmas, Florida, population 1,832. Christmas, Michigan was founded by a factory owner in 1938 here in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan on the Lake Superior shoreline, about 64 miles from my home here in Escanaba. Every business in that town has a Christmas theme, like Yule Log Resort, which is on Candy Cane Lane. My wife and I camped there in an RV during COVID 2020. Christmas, Florida is a short drive east of Orlando. It was named for Fort Christmas, which was built on Christmas Day in 1837 during the Second Seminole War. Henry, you'd appreciate that, a little bit of war history. Now, the answer would have been four, however, if we included Christmas Valley, Oregon, and Christmas Cove, Maine. And by the way, there are three North Poles, not one. There's the real North Pole, there's North Pole, Alaska, and there's North Pole, New York in the Adirondack Mountains. I've been to one of them, North Pole, Alaska. They have great ice sculptures and, of course, a McDonald's restaurant. Yeah, you know, there must be something special about the state of Michigan, because in addition to Christmas on the UP, there is paradise. And down in the lower peninsula, there's hell. <laughs> yeah, the first, first Notice that's in the lower peninsula. The first triathlon I ever did, the bike ride went through Hell, Michigan, which was, I think, intentional. Um, anyway, thanks. Uh, thanks, you guys. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Um, have, a, have a terrific holidays, everybody. However you celebrate, um, I hope you're with family and, and are safe and have a peaceful uh, break uh, during the holidays. Um, the, if you want to get CME credit again, IFP.com. The Illinois Academy of Family Physicians, I've got to say this, is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. They designate this podcast for one half AMA category one credit. I can hear radios turning off all over the country. The IFP adheres to the conflict of interest policy of the ACCME and the AMA. You can read the complete disclosure on the IFP website, and I don't know why they make me read it if you can read it on their website. Hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. Please tell your friends. We will talk to you soon in the new year with more primary care updates.